During the pandemic, there was a lot of respect for teachers, but at the polls in Cuyahoga County yesterday, there was no respect for the schools. The taxes all failed. It's one of the things we'll be talking about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. How are you both today? Doing well. Still here. Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> Let's have a podcast. Yeah. Let's have a margarita. that sounds better could Cuyahoga County social workers have prevented the shooting death of a six-year-old boy by his mother Laura Johnson you want to be really careful about putting the onus on social workers they're underpaid they're overworked the county never has enough of them but we've had a regular stream of cases in which people say I tried to get their help to prevent this that ends in tragedy is this another one of those cases Maybe. I mean, this is really sad. And um, the boy, Kamir's grandmother, really thinks that there should have been more intervention by the Cuyahoga County Department of Children and Family Services. She said the county didn't heed her warnings about about Kamir. He was six. He was this bright kindergartner and karma. And it's just terribly sad. She reported to the police, too, weeks before his death, that her grandson told him that his mother hit him in the stomach. Uh, because he said he was hungry. And this got reported to DCFS. And we asked about it. Adam Faris has a really detailed, great story after talking to the family and the county. And the county basically said that was discipline, not abuse. And it was about snacking, which I don't know, you just have to shake your head. But this was not the first incident. She'd been involved with DCFS since at least 2017 when she was arrested in Lakewood. And the grandmother, Jennifer Andrews, actually moved to Cleveland in February. She was so worried about her grandson, pulled her kids out of their apartment and moved to a hotel so she could keep a closer eye on them. And she happened to be in the hospital while some of this was going on. She tried her best and she just says DCFS did not do enough. And she had been, the mom had been diagnosed at one point with schizophrenia. And clearly, in hindsight, the, the, there's mental issues here. You don't right. shoot your six-year-old son to death uh, if you're thinking straight. Uh, so the mother, seemed, the grandmother, has some evidence that there was a problem. And if they do have evidence that they kept telling the county about it, it does look like we have this problem again. We're going to publish a story by Courtney Stolfi and Bob Higgs in the next day or two that traces these cases back to when I first got here in Cleveland when then County Commissioner Tim McCormick was revealing confidential information to show the extent of the problem. And we have an interview with him on his perspective on it today and the challenges of knowing when to take a kid and put the kid into foster care. It is the hardest job, I think, in government to be a social worker, to to decide when to pull a kid from a parent because it's devastating. Um, But we've had so many cases over the years where tragedy happens. It doesn't seem like our system's working, right? It it is. It is so hard to know at the time. You cannot predict the future. I actually um, followed some social workers for about six months at a point when I was the county reporter. And you you see what they do every day and this is a unforgiving job you don't get a lot of you know accolades for it you don't get a lot of positive feedback it's it's a lot of negativity and people get burnt out really quickly um but they're in it for the right reasons it's just hard to know and yeah taking away a kid from their parent is just the ultimate um 
decision. And you got to think about how it's been during COVID. Uh, one reason that there couldn't be an in-person visit in April with DCFS and this family was that the social worker was quarantining because a member of her family had COVID. And you think, God, how do you even begin to decide what's best for these kids if you can't even meet with them? And you can't like go through the, their apartment and see how dirty it is and if there's food in the fridge. Yeah, the the pandemic made it all worse. I think we're going to learn a lot. I remember that project you did. That was a great idea. I wonder who came up with that. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the Ohio Republican Party really so venal that it would censure a congressman who voted how his conscience instructed him in the impeachment of Donald Trump? Jane Cahoon, this one just bothers me at an elemental level that that a guy who votes his conscience in the face of opposition from his fellow fellow party members would get blasted in such a way. It just seems like such a cowardly act by people who have fealty to Donald Trump instead of standing up for a guy's right to vote the way he thinks. It's really amazing how this has played out. Yeah, they have scheduled a vote of the Central Committee of the Ohio Republican Party on Friday to vote on a resolution to do just that, to censure Rocky River Republican Congressman Anthony Gonzalez for voting to impeach Trump for inciting the violent insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th that, as we know, led to multiple deaths and and injuries. This resolution would also censure the other nine Republicans who voted the way Gonzalez did for the impeachment. And it caused the impeachment proceeding unconstitutional and politically motivated and meritless partisan act driven by retribution. Um, I think perhaps the most interesting part of the resolution says that impeaching uh, a president, you know, is not only after his term is concluded, is not only, you know, unprecedented and unconstitutional, but they said it serves no purpose beyond further dividing this country. And it's time for Republicans to unify as a party. Well, to me, this seems like one of the most divisive things, you know, you can do. Uh, It doesn't seem to further the cause of uniting the party to me anyway. But, you know, I guess it's not really surprising. The Ohio Republican Party is led by Bob Paduchik, who managed Trump's campaign in Ohio. So, you know, the whole thing kind of made me wonder whether whether they're trying to give a boost to their former chairman, Jane Timken, who's locked in this ugly primary battle with former state state treasurer Josh Mandel and other Trump worshiping candidates who are all vying to be the Trumpiest, you know, and uh, she in particular is trying really hard to erase what she said just a couple weeks after Gonzalez voted this way. Our Andrew Tobias interviewed her and, and put her on the spot about it. And she said, this was before she declared for the Senate. She said, I think he's been a very effective legislator. I don't know if I would have voted that way, but you know, he's he's got a rational reason why he voted that way, and he's a very good person. But uh, you know, all of a sudden she became a candidate, and now she's you know calling for him to resign and condemning him, and you know because she's taken flack for for what she said and for supporting Mike DeWine, you know, the um, radical moderate or whatever you want to call him. But anyway, so it's it is it's just really interesting. I mean. I just, I, 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 what surprises me is that none of these folks seem to have their eye on their legacy. 
that that when the books are written 50 years from now and 30 years from now, they're on the wrong side. I mean, that, that there's no doubt about they're going to be cast as the wrong side. Voting to censure somebody who voted his conscience in a serious national issue is not something to be proud of. It's something to be ashamed of. And they're doing it marching in because they want the approval of the worshipful Donald Trump. I mean, you're yeah, right. Jane Hipkin told him i clean that up i clean that up i made clear he's a bad guy you know it's like god where is yeah. your integrity yeah. audience of one but you know it's it's interesting too it's happening in congress where they there there's a movement to ask liz cheney who voted like gonzalez did and she's in a top leadership position and gonzalez has come out and defended her saying she's not gonna lie you know she's not gonna stand for lies about what happened and what happened in the election and, and what happened on January 6th. So, you know, he stuck to his position um, and doesn't well, seem to be. Look, anybody who respects integrity looks at him and sees it. He's been a, a gem of a congressperson and he he voted his conscience. He's He stands up yeah. for what he believes in. Let the chips fall where they may. I guess this is somewhere where the chips are falling. But and he's got an opponent, too, in the primary, a Trump backed candidate, of course. So, you know, he's he's being punished. OK, you're listening to this week in the CLE. How did school taxes in Cuyahoga County on the ballot Tuesday do? Laura Johnston, not well. <laughs> not well. I, You know, I've covered um, elections here since 2007, and I can't remember all of them failing um, in, at one time. But yeah, three school districts, one city, um, Strongsville voted down uh, EMS and fire levy, and then Rocky River, North Olmstead, and Parma all rejected uh, tax increases. And this is a big deal in Parma because they wanted to consolidate their high schools and middle schools. They thought we don't need three high schools here anymore. So they were trying to, you know, improve the schools. Rocky River wanted to put in a new kitchen in their high school. They'd finally be able to serve hot lunch to the elementary schools. Right now there aren't, there isn't any. So kids who would qualify for a free or reduced lunch still can't get one because we just don't have it. Um, so there were some concrete plans that schools wanted to do, but uh, voters said no. And you know, I was talking about this with my neighbors this morning and it's like cars sales are booming. People are buying boats like everybody's got stimulus money. So I don't think you can say that people don't have the money. I, I, I was I was surprised that it went down like it did. Although I do wonder when school districts put things on a ballot on a on a non real election day, whether they curse themselves, that, that if they put these on the November ballot, which is the general election day, or in the uh, in the even numbered years when there are primaries for governor and Congress and things, that it would make sense. But when you put it on a ballot yesterday, when there's no reason to go to the polls, only the people that feel strongly are going to show up. And and often those are the people that don't want their taxes going up. It's almost like the school districts play a game by when they put these things on the ballot and, and looks like they paid the price. I wonder if they'd fare better in November when there's a bigger turnout and people are generally supportive of the schools. Do you know if they campaigned on the idea that that throughout the pandemic they served their community in, in extenuating circumstances? I think a lot of people had great respect for the school systems during the pandemic with what they had to go through. 
I don't know what the campaigns were like in all of the school districts. I know here it was pretty much just like, it's for the kids, but, and you know, there were yard signs, but it, it wasn't a, I kind of think it was an assumption that it was going to pass. I don't know the last time a levy failed in Rocky River. You know, people are very proud of how well performing the school district is. You know, the U.S. News and World Report list of best high schools just came out and we ranked, um, and I obviously, I live in Rocky River, so uh, we, we ranked 11th in the state. So I think people were pretty proud of that. And, you know, well, but wait, but hold on. Yeah. But let's remember, they just went through right. a disgusting right. scandal where the male teachers were ogling the female students and the school district was fairly secretive about it. I mean, I, my bet is that a lot of your neighbors were disgusted with one, the culture that exists in that school and two, the way they dealt with it. And one of the ways people deal with that kind of disgust is to vote no on a tax increase. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think that was the first concern about the levy folks when that came out was what is this going to do? And then, you know, we're going to be working on a story today about some robocalls that went out and there's a petition about um, the idea of the way that race is being taught in the schools. So yeah, there's some things churning under the surface and we're going to try to get to the bottom of them, but you're right. All of this stuff plays in. If you, you know, you have people saying, you always have people saying, I can't afford to pay more. And then you have people saying, I don't like what the school's doing. I'm not giving them more money. Yeah. That's what sounds like happened here. I feel bad for Parma. They have had, they have had so many failed problems. Right? I know. I thought that maybe with the new blood moving into Parma that they'd pass a levy. It takes a little while for that to catch up. Maybe in a couple of years, they'll have more success. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What's the thinking behind the awarding of a courage award to Dr. Amy Acton, the former Ohio health director who did such a wonderful job leading the state in the early months of the pandemic? Jane Cahoon, she was, we're big fans of hers, obviously. We've talked about her often, but a courage award? Yeah, the thinking is that she and six others who are going to get these awards risked their lives and their safety to protect others during the pandemic. So they're going to receive a special Profile and Courage Award from the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation later this month. The library notes that under Acton's leadership, Ohio was ahead of most other states in responding to the virus, and it notes how she became the target of protesters and state legislators who sought to limit her power and engaged in personal attacks against her. So this was the result of thousands of people across the country submitting nominations for this COVID Courage um, Award, and the the seven people um, also include you know, not only prominent people, but everyday people like a New Orleans grocery store owner who let his customers put food on credit when the economy shut down and a a Massachusetts fire department captain who created a mobile health program to to deliver testing and other services to residents at home. And then, um, as I said, prominent people like Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who we know received death threats and and there was a, a plot to to kidnap her and so forth. But um, separately, Utah Senator Mitt Romney's getting a, um, you know, the big profile and courage award for his vote to impeach President Donald Trump. And that was the first impeachment trial, you know, when he was the only one who stuck his neck out. And, and that was the first time in American history that a senator voted to convict a president of his own party. So, so that's the, that's the picture on this. So Romney gets a courage award 
and Gonzalez gets <laughs> right, it's amazing right, what's going on right. in this country right now. Do you think this will fortify her and make her resolve to actually enter the USA? Yeah. <laughs> you keep you keep hoping, Chris. I you know I I wish I knew the answer to that. I mean, I think her decision was final, but one never knows. One never knows. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Two men who have spent 14 years in prison for a crime they say they did not commit walked free this week. Why did an appellate court say police and prosecutors were to blame for the overturning of the convictions? Laura Johnston, this is a pretty bad example of police doing some bad things that ended up taking a lot of years away from a couple of guys. Yeah, well, we don't really know if they're guilty at all because two um during the original trial two police officers testified and in sworn statements um said sorry everything hinged on the testimony of these two officers and then later two other officers said in sworn statements that the officers were not where they said they were when the initial shooting happened so i mean that kind of makes you wonder what's going on but so this these two guys kenny phillips and michael sutton got to leave jail on late monday after a judge lowered their bonds to 10 percent of fifty thousand dollars because an appeals court ruled that it, they reversed their 2005 conviction and said that they were not given a fair trial so um the defense attorneys said, sorry, the appeals court determined that prosecutors failed to tell the defense attorneys about the officer's conflicting statements about this 2006 shooting. So yeah, it seemed pretty convoluted, but obviously not everything adds up in this case. And there's absolutely no physical evidence to tie these guys to the crime. So this was completely based on testimony of two Cleveland police officers whose whose credibility has been challenged by fellow police officers and yet prosecutors and police never told them that. And this is a railroad job. It sounds like, I mean, this, this is two cops testifying falsely, putting two guys away for 14 years. I wonder if there'll be recriminations for false testimony by the officers. Right. And not just 14 years. I mean, they got to walk out of jail, but they're on bail. I mean, the first one guy was supposed to serve 61 and the other one was supposed to serve 40 years. And they were 17 at the time of this in 2006. Yeah, this is a case we'll pay attention to. It'll be interesting to see if they get retried or if they drop the charges. Either way, they they should have a settlement coming if they're not convicted. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is the Ohio House trying to maintain the label of husband and wife for people seeking to adopt children? And why is the Senate working to change that label? Jane Cahoon, this one seems like it should be simple. And a bunch of Republicans are on the side of making the change but those great legislators in the Ohio House <laughs> are trying to maintain the divide. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily uh, assume that the Senate is is going to do uh, what you think is the right thing here. But some people in the Senate are working to change it. So anyway, we all know that the U.S. Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in the entire country six years ago. So we know that's the law of the land, whether people on whatever side like it or don't. So in Governor Mike DeWine's budget proposal, uh, on the advice of attorneys, they they put language in there. Um, they, they wanted to change language that is currently in Ohio law regarding couples who adopt children, referring to them as husband and wife. So the new language would be legally married couple to reflect the fact that same-sex couples adopt children. But the Republican majority in the Ohio House, in their version of the budget, 
they rejected that language and reverted back to the husband and wife language. So we couldn't really get a specific reason from the Republican House finance chairman, Scott Olslager, who shepherded the budget through. But he told Laura Hancock, you know, it's just a semantic issue and it doesn't change the fact that, that gay couples can continue to adopt children. And then we have people like, you know, State Senator Nikki Antonio, who's a Democrat. She she agreed that it won't change the law of the land, but she's pushing for the language change because, I mean, the current language is antiquated and it's not inclusive at all. So Laura also talked to a policy strategist from Equality Ohio who said, you know, this conceivably could cause legal problems for same-sex couples if their adoption ends up before a judge who decides to ignore the Supreme Court ruling and, and instead focuses on this literal description that's now in state law. So yes, Chris, this is Ohio, the, the state that DeWine recently called progressive that wants to attract a diverse population to move here. So I'll just leave it at that. And what a great legacy for Mr. Olslager to have, to be the one that was the guardian of the language of husband and wife that demeans the marriages of gay people throughout Ohio. He ought to feel really good about himself as he goes to sleep at night. The The thing that is um, surprising about this is that Mike DeWine was the one that that proposed making the change. Well, you know, they're involved uh, apparently in some litigation and the lawyer said this is the right thing to do. So I don't know how noble it was. It was something done on the advice of attorneys. But, you know, I mean, it's as I said, whether you like it or not, this is the law of the land. And the language, it seems to me, should reflect what the law of the land is. Can I add that this is Laura Johnston. I just feel like we've talked a lot in the last year about how words matter. And it's like, okay, they matter to people. Just get with the times. Well, look, it's the Ohio House. These are the people that are <laughs> keeping true. Larry Householder yes. as a <laughs> member. Yes, enlightened crew, aren't they? The whole state is like, why is he still sitting there? You know, the Supreme Court has knocked out a city council person who's charged with a crime, and yet Bob Cup and his colleagues are keeping this this crook on in the house and and it's not even a question of of being crooked people have already pleaded guilty in this thing saying yes it's all true 60 million dollar bribery case and this is the guy that masterminded it and bob cup is happy to have him as a member it's this week in the cle does a recent study provide new insights into why Cuyahoga County is a national leader in sentencing criminals to death or johnson we knew that that Cuyahoga County was a leader. This study gets a bit into how that comes to be. Yeah, it's kind of like a practice makes, you know, at least procedure kind of thing. But the county has been one of the leading counties in the country since 1972, ranked 15th in the nation in the number of homicides from 72 to 2019, and 12th in the number of people sentenced to death. And the reason, I guess, is self-reinforcing, according to these experts. According to one expert, this is the way they put it, you either get good at it and you keep doing it, or you don't and you never use it again. So apparently we're pretty good at it here in Cuyahoga County. We have the will of the people behind it. Um, one expert told John Coniglia, who wrote the story, that you're not going to put the death penalty on in San Francisco, right? So people here have accepted it, and that's why they keep going for it, um, and they have the resources to do it. However, you know, there's this interesting wrinkle in Ohio where we're not really executing anyone at this point. They haven't executed anyone since July 2018, and 
Governor Mike DeWine has postponed the executions until state authorities can find the drugs needed for lethal injection because nobody wants to sell them to the state anymore. Jane Cahoon, you've handled countless stories about capital punishment over the years, countless stories about it, uh, (laughs) because we've had so much news about it in Ohio. Had had you ever thought about it in this in this light before that that there's geographic areas that do this because they're used to doing it, whereas in other geographic areas that have never tried it, they don't do it. And so if you commit a capital crime, it really depends on where you live as to whether you're going to get executed or not. No, I know I never have thought about it that way. And uh, there we you know, we did do a story a couple of years ago about Cuyahoga County leading on this and you know they seem to have a rational explanation for it but no i you know the fact that you you do it and then you keep doing it and that that was a totally different angle for me well the reason i ask is it, you know, there's never a, a never ending stream of challenges to the death penalty in ohio this seems like it would be a good one that it's arbitrary based on where you live. They, you know, we've seen it, you know, it's arbitrary based on race and other things, but, but, you know, if I commit the same crime in Licking County, I'm not going to be executed. But if I commit it in Cuyahoga County, there's a likelihood I will. That's not fair. I mean, that, that, that's a whole new realm of unfairness that I don't think has ever been part of the challenge to capital punishment. Maybe they're saving that one in their pocket because right now we have a de facto moratorium on, on uh, capital punishment because of, as Laura said, the difficulty in obtaining the drugs and Mike DeWine continuing to postpone executions and, you know, none, I can't remember the last time we executed somebody, but it's been a long time. Well, this study will give fodder to that kind of challenge. And that's a, a whole new landscape. Maybe it's been challenged that way elsewhere. I'm just not familiar with it. Well, they talk about the resources and the will of the people. And I guess resources includes money because we've talked on this podcast before about how expensive it is to do a death penalty trial. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's an illuminating study. I'm glad we did the story on it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Where did the NFL draft in Cleveland rank for television and online audiences compared to the draft held in other cities? Laura Johnston, this is a football town. (laughs) (laughs) And you're handing it over to the sports reporter, right? Um, We were um, not the highest, I believe, over the last couple of years for drafts. We pulled in an average of 6.1 million viewers across all of the channels. Uh, Only the virtual draft in 2020, where nobody could go, drew more, 8.3 million. And the 2019 draft in Nashville at 6.2 million. But so... Even if we didn't rank the highest, we have the most hometown pride because Cleveland pulled in the highest rating of any market despite not having a top pick in the draft. So the 10.9 household rating across the region was the highest of any host city since the event hit the road in 2015. So all those here we go brownies and the cheers of Bernie Kosar that you heard when you were watching the draft on TV were probably being echoed in living rooms across the region. Yeah, it's uh, th- this thing just keeps growing. So I think the ranking is a little bit unfair. I, when you first saw the crowd in Philadelphia a few years back, it was shocking and it kind of pushed it into the consciousness like, wow, this is going to be a big event now. And then in Chicago, I have a feeling that every year now it's going to get bigger and bigger. The NFL is brilliant at the way it has turned. <laughs> Basically, I mean, it's like watching lottery balls and, into this <laughs> we, enormous event. We don't have Layla here going, I still 
don't get it. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not like there's any action. It's, you know, every 10 minutes a name is picked and rah, rah. So it's, it's that yeah. suspense that they try to create in reality TV. Like you never know what's going to happen next. Right. But they did it. And it, you know, it was good for Cleveland. It put us on the map. I just, I'm surprised. I wonder if the other sports will figure out a way to do the same thing. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for this podcast episode. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode, but we will not have a Friday episode this week. It'll be Monday when we return after tomorrow. 